has been 11,087 days since the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, and you are parked in the access aisle. Welcome back to the access aisle, everyone. Thank you for joining us. We have an incredible episode for you today. We continue our interview with Robbie Kopp and First Sergeant Walter Sean McDaniel, a 24-year vet of the Richland County Sheriff's Office. We feel really honored to have you here, First Sergeant McDaniel. Uh, you bring such a unique perspective to this conversation, one that doesn't usually get brought to this conversation, one that's usually left out. And so to have you here to open up with us and to be vulnerable, uh, definitely brings a uh, fresh air to what's you know normally stale conversation. Today's interview should be of great interest to any parent, to a child with a disability, and any student with a disability, because Robbie Kopp and First Sergeant McDaniel are going to talk uh, publicly about the work that they've done to create the nation's first school resource officer slash disability policy. Uh, one of the larger unintended consequences of having police officers in schools is that students with disabilities, especially black students with disabilities, are being referred to uh, the SROs at a higher rate and more often being criminally punished for actions or behaviors for which they normally would not have had to face legal action or consequences prior to SROs being in schools. And so this change has had a dramatic and, and negative effect on a lot of students with disabilities. So Robbie Kopp and First Sergeant McDaniel, they talk about this collaboration between the Richland County Sheriff's Office and Able South Carolina, uh, how it originated, what the policy says, and how it can be used as a model, and not just in schools and education, but also throughout other institutions that face issues of racial inequity and just the American culture in general. Uh, there's some really fascinating stuff here. I hope you enjoy it. Before we start, though, last week I teased a huge surprise announcement. I have it for you. It's burning in my hands right now, but my producer is telling me that we have to wait until after the interview. So we have a huge announcement. It's going to happen. We're going to give you this announcement, but we're going to do it right after the interview. So without further ado, Robbie Kopp and First Sergeant McDaniel. I want to talk a little bit about the work that we did. This is not our first conversation. Um, the work that we did with Richland County around student resource officers a few years ago, it started uh, maybe not the way that, that you would have liked. <laughs> do you want to you set the stage for, for how we met? Sure, sure I can. Uh, so back in 2015, May of 2015, the United States Department of Justice received a two-pronged complaint against the Richland County Sheriff Department School Resource Officer Program. And the complaint, the complaints were that African-American students were disproportionately getting arrested and that school resource officers were dealing with students who have a disability from an uninformed position. And so fast forward to October of um, 2015, 
those for those of you who remember that's the same month that we had the thousand one thousand year flood here in south carolina columbia two weeks after that situation we had an incident that occurred at spring valley high school uh, involving a um, white male school resource officer and a black female student and of course you know that got cnn attention uh, nationwide attention it was globalized on a grand scale and so of course you know the department of justice put a halt to their initial investigation into those two accusations that i mentioned earlier and after they um, closed out the case involving spring valley sheriff lott decided that in conjunction with the um, department of justice they they came to a mutual agreement that we need to look into the accusations. We need to conduct a some research. We need to try to measure uh, and become data informed in those in those areas. And we did that for a three year period. Uh, I was brought in as one of the liaisons uh, to help with facilitating that research. It didn't help at the time. At the time, I had just started the PhD program in conflict analysis and resolution. So. Mind you, it was a professional PhD, and in addition to an academic PhD that 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 uh, that I had to start, we were required to develop a report at the end of the second and the end of the third year. But prior to that, in looking at the evidence early on within the the uh, three year period, we discovered that we did not have the advanced training that we needed to have in the areas of disabilities. And we wanted to get that as soon as possible. As a matter of fact, further research, even through the Department of Justice, the Office of Civil Rights, revealed that it wasn't just us, that this problem stretched across the country within law enforcement and within the, as it relates to the area of disabilities. And so we've had to come up with a policy to address that. And so uh, that was one of the first prongs that we attacked. And so I know that I'm not smart enough to develop such a policy by myself. And I, cause again, operating from a law enforcement uh, position, you know, would have limited my knowledge of what that looks like and what, what it needs to be brought to the table. And so we reached out to several um, organizations. Uh, we reached out to uh, Lexington Richland School District 5. We reached out to South Carolina ABLE. And uh, that's how I met. That's how I met you, Robbie, and then yeah. you came. And then we also had uh, child psychiatrists. We reached out to PNA Law Firm, uh, a leading law firm here within South Carolina, uh, on on behalf of the rights of children. And uh, I remember the first meeting. If you don't mind, I like to talk about how <laughs> how we everyone came to the meeting. You know, naturally, uh, there was some defensive jockeying if you will you know some defensive positioning because we were we were so used to operating within silos you know and it's it's pointing the finger at one another in terms of where the problem lie and but you know there was this period and i'm quite sure you felt the same way you could speak to it on your own but I, where we began to externalize the problem and we began to mutually learn that we each had a contribution and dealing with the conflict of the absence of education uh, and 
training in the areas of disabilities. And so from that, Robbie, as you know, we developed the nation's first school resource officer disability policy. And it was just awesome how that came together. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to make that policy available when the, uh, as the podcast is released, wherever you access it from, whether it's the able SC website or the access aisle, uh, podcast page, there'll be a link to that SRO policy so that you can, you can get into the weeds uh, with Sergeant McDaniels and I and, and really look at the work that took place and, and what was needed. Uh, I think just for, for me in, in that experience, seeing kind of the overlap of African-American students and students with disabilities and how they were, they were both getting uh, they were both having interactions with law enforcement through the SROs that, that weren't equivalent for other groups. For me, I think that was one of the biggest pieces and, and a note that it's probably my privilege has made this possible, but this was the big uh, crossover that I saw between the disability community and, and students of color, knowing that this was happening and that students were being um, taken out in handcuffs and uh, for, for relatively minor uh, infractions and and that damage was being done uh, at the school with peers and, and students were being labeled as as problems where uh, they may have been working through some behaviors related to their disability or or some of the trauma that that they had experienced at home so I've in the last few weeks um, I've really thought back to this policy and, and the way that has it has changed uh, interactions with SROs in Richland County uh, and and hoping to see something systemic and, and wanting to see something systemic for law enforcement beyond that. We had some, some conversations around uh, law enforcement response and making sure that law enforcement are always, they're always safe, but not at the detriment that they're, they're using excessive force uh, against a student. And I think we're, we're seeing other manifestations of that in law enforcement and other places. Sergeant, what was, there's, there's one thing that, that I think stands out for me the most when we were working in this policy, and that was really identifying the tools that law enforcement have. Does, I, I want to see if the same thing stands out for you without me saying what it is. <laughs> we talked about a tool that, that hadn't really been used. First, assess the safety of the situation, and then second was was being able to use time as a tool to, to help de-escalate a situation before there was physical interaction, before there was charges filed, but that there was a chance to, for the law enforcement presence to be known and for the student to, to kind of uh, recenter and make sure that they're in a place that they can have a conversation around their behavior. Do you remember that part and when we were really nailing that and, and feeling comfortable? Because I, I feel like that was, a, that was a bit of a watershed moment for the group. I would agree, actually. You're talking about the TIER strategy that we came up with, and TIER is an acronym for um, Team Intervention Emergency Response. And I remember when it, you know, that the aha moment. Now, mind you, uh, just to kind of help our listeners uh, internalize, you know, that that process. You know, it was a facilitation, for lack of a better expression, or or example rather, um, the facilitation where we you get uh, represent representative of from different factions and we all come together for, to address a common uh, conflict 
and we we began to after the first meeting and everyone was was able to voice their you know uh they were allowed to be you know uh, it was a safe space to be emotional it was a safe space to be to, to, to question one another and once we got past that we saw the need to not work and to operate to not operate within our own silos but to see the importance of mutually learning and moving forward with uh, externalizing the problem we externalized it and you know it, so it was no longer uh, law enforcement's fault no longer education educator and at, and at the the education system's fault we it took flight and I think the the moment that you're talking about is what that's when we we all recognized a shift if you will in and how we began to operate as a as a unified team dealing with that externalized problem. We separated from the individuals and we started moving and we came with the tear. You know, I remember, I remember we were all excited about, you know, what does it mean? And we, we, everyone knew that safety was first and foremost, which that satisfied my concern and from a law enforcement perspective. And then we began to say, well, how do we get the teachers, the school resource officer, the school psychiatrist, to, you know, the counselors, to begin to work together. Uh, and we developed a tier system and it consisted of tier one, which was, um, and I'll just read from it. Tier one is where the SRO provides supportive presence only, either in or outside of the classroom or specific area as specified by the school staff. In this tier, there is no need, there is no need for the SRO to uh, have direct contact. And again, while still assessing, Tier two is the SRO provides a supportive physical presence and assists the school faculty in using de-escalation and other advanced mediation techniques, you know, clearing the classroom or moving, moving furniture out in, in an effort to help the teacher navigate that problem with the student. And of course, tier three is, is when there's a need for law enforcement to intervene and, you know, when safety becomes an issue. And so that was crucial to develop that tier system. It speaks for itself. It's, it's about the team and not necessarily calling the muscle being the school resource officer to come deal with a school related problem. Yeah. And I, with every, with every instance of, of either police brutality or, or police showing up to a scene and on reports of violent crime that aren't substantiated and, and how those situations escalate so quickly, I keep thinking about this policy. Um, mm. I keep thinking about how that that little bit of time to assess the situation and to make sure that as long as everybody's safe, then we can we can be okay with being safe and and taking some time. Is it just it comes back to me every single story, and I think it's it's so much a part of having a hard time saying this clearly that. Time has the ability for us to see past that initial response, where that initial response is, because it's quick, it's more likely to be influenced by that, by that bias. And when we're able to have that breath or that half breath um, to realize what's happening, that the situation can go differently. And without that time, with, with actions that are kind of the difference between quick and hasty having a huge impact on on the lives of people. It's, it just seems more and more necessary to me. 
that when interacting with a person with a disability, maybe knowing how their disability may impact that interaction and being prepared to, to navigate that without the use of a weapon, um, mm-hmm. I think is, is, is tough. You know, one, of the, one of the challenges that we have within law enforcement is, you know, in dealing with students who have a disability is that, you know, parents struggle with their child being labeled as someone with a disability, a student with a disability, because they, they believe that they're, again, because they're conscious of some of the negative stigma associated with it. And they don't want their child to have to navigate through that that obstacle, if you will. And so oftentimes, some of the um, students and their disabilities, are, they're, they're not acknowledged. And so an officer doesn't have access to that information. We noticed that during the study too, that um, you had a good number of individuals who were suffering with a disability, but you know, suffering, when I say suffering with it, I mean like, because, they were not they were not given the opportunity to to receive appropriate modified services appropriate appropriate as relates to their disability not yeah. not to the extent of treating them different you know in in such a way where it's it limits them you know even more it's unfair an unfair distribution of services no it was they were silently dealing with some of the limitations unjustifiably placed upon them every day, you know? And so it boils down to the, the absence of communication, the, you know, when the negative stigma stops the parent from sharing, then of course the end result is an interaction with law enforcement or with a, an authority within the school, an authoritative person within the school. And, and, we're not able to to service the child properly, and we, you know, we, which is why we trained our officers in the area of uh, disability identification, the in the areas of autism and mental illness, well, mental wellness rather, and and what does that look like for our our, our student body today? Uh, we did we did that for three years in a row. Uh, we provided that training. And so we need to we need to continue to do that. Yeah, I think for me and and doing that work, I kept thinking to an example of a student who would be impacted um, and and may have had a negative interaction with law enforcement. You you kind of mentioned autism. For me, the example was a student with autism who there was there was too much stimulation in that environment and and needed to be able to process and mm. and kind of cool back down, knowing right. that if law enforcement came in heavy into that situation that it was only going to escalate. But if right. law enforcement, if, if an SRO is able to, to stand in the doorway and to give the teacher the support and, and even um, move other students out so that there's less noise and less stimulation, then, then that That's would right. be beneficial to the student. And you can address the behavior when the student is, is ready to be back in that place. So that's, I think that's the real life examples help to really shed light on what what was happening and, and what could have been happening instead. Um, I, I like to share this one story. This is a, it's almost like a watershed moment, at least for, for me it was. Um, if you remember my, where my office was located in the back of uh, Spring, Hot, Spring Hill High School, 
uh, where we st first started meeting in, in that small little closet. And, um, you know, up until that point, I did not know that that was primarily where most of the students who uh, were dealing with challenges, uh, disabilities, if you will, that they were actually, most of their classes were back there, right? Where I, my office was positioned. And I remember once we developed the tear strategy, I remember sitting in my office and the door was open and it seemed as if this is, it's going to, it's going to sound crazy, but this is an actual truth. This is a, a, a true story. Whenever I looked up, I would see one of the students go by and it, it just like our eyes would connect. That seemed crazy to me, right? So I knew that it was creating the nation's first disability policy for law enforcement was bigger than us. It was bigger than us. And I remember noticing that everyone seemed to say hello to me or nod their head. Like, you know, like, you know, that was crazy. And in that moment, Bobby, this is true. I got a phone call from my son's teacher who uh, at the time he was in the uh, fifth grade and a, a another student's parent came in for a conference. And this particular student had a disability that not many of the kids knew about, some social so socialization challenges, right? That caused him to have some socialization challenges. And so my son, um, the parent actually wanted to commend my son for making sure that everyone treated and gave uh, this particular student the opportunity to play in the football game and how he, and it really broke me down. Like, honestly, in that moment, while I was pinning the, what we came up with as a group into our template, our policy template, so I saw the student, imagine, I saw the students walking towards me ex while they were changing classes, giving me nonverbal cues that they were behind me, right? Uh, and then to get the phone call in the moment from um, the, the teacher saying that my son, which was across town at the time, was being acknowledged by a, a parent whose child had a disability because he he, he treated uh, their child like he was like like a like a, a person should be treated, you know, because um, the child would go home and talk about my son, sire this and sire that. And so anyway, I just said I just knew then that it was bigger than us because you have to understand law enforcement is a culture, and so you know when you start creating and changing and, and modifying policy within any culture, you know you're going to meet with depending on the, on the, on the change, a, a certain degree of, um, uh, resistance. And so that I was, you know, having to fight with that, you know, luckily for, for me, the sheriff was in full support of it. Uh, and so at the end of the day, that's all that matters. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so he, it goes a long way. Yeah. <laughs> it goes a long way. You know, he was, he was in support of it and it's just, there's a natural resistance associated with change and it, it it's, um, you know, we're still working through that. Yeah, I think we're I mean, systemically seeing kind of the calls for change and that there's, there's a real need for us to rethink what law enforcement interaction looks like and what supports are provided. Because outside of a school, law enforcement is so often the one stop, like it's operating in an island and 
and has to respond to mental health calls and responds to crime, responds to any number of things. And as a result, I think there's, there's a lot of pressure for law enforcement to, to be everything to everyone. And, and I don't know that that can work. I think that's what really made this policy so strong was when this, when a situation is, is fairly and well managed that there's more room for the school psychologist to address behavior with that student afterwards right. because they're not in jail <laughs> and that student can get the support they need. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to see the pressure for that and the conversation of what needs to happen in communities across the country to make sure that the supports are there so that law enforcement isn't as necessary. Yeah. And, and if I may add to that, you know, we have to get what we created in that room on a micro level, it needs to be reproduced on a macro level when it comes to racial indifference, when it comes to indifference towards um, disability population, is you don't get just to take care of your own. It's an unfair expectation that's self-created when you believe that you're only responsible for those who exist within your own backyard. It's a self-created expectation that we have to get rid of. We, we bear an obligation to see ourselves in those traffic stops that have gone wrong where the use of force has been abused, if you will. You know, and, and so I, uh, I take and bring, I guess, bringing the conversation slightly back towards uh, racial indifference. People know that suburban America is policed differently. <laughs> yeah. We just have to stop acting like it's not. And so when you have law enforcement uh, acting as if like it's not, you know, then then uh, that causes problems. And, you know, let's just, let's just be honest. Like we, the only difference between drug usage and in suburban America uh, and, and impoverished America is that you get the good cocaine in suburban America. <laughs> you know, the keg parties happened. Yeah. You, have, you know, the, the drug usage happened. Opioid, opioid use has taken off and, you know, but the patrolling directives are different. You know, the, you can, I can go to the suburbs and pull people for minor traffic of, uh, violations all day, every day. They don't, they're not better drivers in, in, in suburban America. And so we have to focus our efforts in, 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 in the areas of, uh, uh, we're, we're predominantly um, uh, African-American and uh, African-Americans live. No, we, you know, that's a choice to have selective patrol directives. That's a choice. And guess what? People know that. You know, people know that. <laughs> you know, and, and so that's why, you know, we have to we have to fix that. We have to address that. You know. Absolutely. And I think we we're seeing the effects of over policing in in minority communities. I mean we're we're seeing those impacts. It's it's become uh, impossible to look away. Uh, and and that there is change that comes with that. I think what's the the next place of the conversation and what I'm hearing more from organizers uh, is 
the call for not just less law enforcement, but the same level of supportive services. If, if a neighborhood is dangerous or, or deemed dangerous, it's not likely to have parks programs for kids. Uh, that's just how it works. Uh, and because there's no parks programs for kids, there's nothing else for kids to do. <laughs> and, and the decisions that come with that may for some lead to other law enforcement interactions and their neighborhoods more likely to be policed. So it's, it's over policing and underserving in, in a lot of ways with how communities operate. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to see those calls rising. Uh, when we say what's a, what's a community with a reduced law enforcement presence look like, uh, it looks like the suburbs because that's what <laughs> we see that already. I mean, that's, that's just, that's kind of the, the answer to that question. But I, I, I think it's important that we continue to have these. And it's important that the disability community know uh, that there is a role for people with disabilities in these conversations. And there sure. is a role for, for everyone to look at your life, to, to weigh your position, to find ways that uh, maybe you've had it easier, maybe that you have an increased voice and an opportunity to, to pass the mic and, and raise the perspective of, of the folks in your community that are, that are seeing the problems if you're not. But the work is, the work is happening. The work is needed, vitally important. So glad that, uh, that you share this conversation with me and that you are, are doing the good work that you're doing at Richland County and uh, ABLE South Carolina will continue to participate in the conversation and, and further the real humanhood of every person uh, as, it, as it should be taken. We have to, we have to see past indifference and, and use our role to make the systems better. Well, that was an incredible interview. Thank you, Robbie, and thank you for Sergeant McDaniel. I think the moment that stood out to me was the story that he told about for Sergeant McDaniel when he, when he talked about his son's teacher. So often people don't understand the disability experience unless you have a close family member with a disability or someone that you live with. Those that do, you know, those people that do live with those individuals, they're the ones that usually end up becoming, you know, what we call the champions of people with disabilities. And I think it's because those people have the chance to see that person as, as a person and more than just a disability. They get to really experience what that life is like and understand that this is just a person just like me. And I feel like that same thing basically happened here and that when First Sergeant McDaniel's son, he basically taught him a lesson about how we should treat other people and not just people with disabilities, but everyone. And I think that speaks to this entire conversation that we've been having about racial disparities in America. And, you know, if we treat each other as equals and with genuine care and respect, then it just makes everyone's life better. Okay, everyone, I think it's time for our big announcement. I know I've been putting it off long enough. I'm just going to go ahead and say I'm going to let everyone know. I don't, I don't really care what the producers say. Uh, it's time. We're going to say it. And the big announcement is 
Drum roll, please. This is the final episode of the Access Isle. That's right. In January 2021, we will reemerge as the Stop the Shush podcast with Sparrow and the Bear. So, yes, this is our last episode of the Access Isle. Uh, we're going to be transitioning to a new format. I will be your new host, Sparrow, and I am bringing along a friend. Allow me to introduce your new co-host, The Bear. Hello, hello. Thank you, Chris. Yes, I am The Bear, also known as Bauer. I will answer to either name. Uh, I'm really excited to be with you, Chris. I'm really excited to start this new adventure with you. So, yeah, yes. very exciting things. Yes, yes, they are very exciting things. We are going to be starting a new format. We're going to be changing things around a little bit. The podcast is not going to sound uh, like it used to sound. So new year, new sound. Bauer, tell me, what, what are some things that you're excited about with this new podcast? I think the main thing I'm really excited about is all the different conversations we're going to have. And I'm not just talking about with you and, and me, but the conversations we're going to have with our listeners. We're going to make this interactive. We're going to ask for feedback from y'all. But having conversations about topics that we don't generally talk about, things that we push under the rug, things that we shush, deciding to not do that, deciding to take all of those taboo topics and, and bring them out into the open so that we can make the change that we need to see in, in our society, I think is a really important and a really exciting thing. So how worried are you that we're going to get in trouble at some point with something that we say? I'm usually a goody two-shoes, so I usually err on the side of not getting in trouble or trying to not get in trouble. So we'll see how exciting it actually does get. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I think pushing the boundaries just a little bit um, is, is not a bad thing within decency's sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to have some good, we're going to have a good time. We're, we're going to make this thing fun. We're going to make it lively. Uh, we're going to bring in some good banter. We're going to have some fun guests. And, you know, we're going to talk about these things that we normally don't get to talk about. And so we want it to be focused on the consumer. We want to be focused on people out there with disabilities and getting to chance to give you a voice and to bring uh, light to topics that you don't normally get to talk about. So that is our goal. That is what we look forward to. Uh, so Bauer, Bear, we will see you and we will see the rest of the crew in January 2021. And we look forward to it. And uh, watch out for the Stop the Shush podcast with Sparrow and the Bear. Thanks, Sparrow. See you soon. <laughs>